0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture passage again, is First Thessalonians chapter four verses one through eight. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you recede from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, That no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, As most of you know, I'm a football fan. I I mentioned Oregon football in my last sermon, and I hear some of you, all you did in your community groups is talk about Oregon football, which was not the intention of that illustration. Um, But as I've grown to love the game of college football, there's certain personalities and people that just stand out as one worthy of respect or admiration. One story I love, a storyline you could say, a family tradition in football, is the Manning family. As you know, Archie Manning is the father of Peyton Manning and Eli Manning. Both of his sons were All-American quarterbacks, and both of his sons won Super Bowls in the NFL. Now, Archie Manning was an amazing quarterback in his own right. He was an All-American at Ole Miss, and he also played 11 years of professional football, and he performed quite well. But after his freshman year of college, he went home to discover that his father, Buddy Manning, committed suicide. He went through a tremendously difficult time where he even thought about dropping out. He just didn't know what to do with himself. But in that time of formation, it shaped him. And he set aside like, you know, I want, I want to be a great dad one day. I don't know what's going to happen in my football career. I don't know what's going to happen in my life. But I want to be the dad I never had And so that shaped him. And so as he succeeded in football and as he had children with his wife, he had no intention to raise professional quarterbacks as sons. He actually could care less of Peyton, Eli, and Connor if they did anything in football. Archie was on a mission to love his boys and he loved his boys well. Uh, there's a documentary by ESPN called The Book of Manning and it highlights, highlights that he woke up every morning, his children, he woke them up to tell them that he loved them and he put them all down to sleep and the last thing he told them is he loved them. And in the book ends of his affection for them, he just showered his boys with love. Naturally, Peyton idolized his dad. He wanted to be like him in every way. Growing up as a child and watching your father being a dominating professional quarterback will shape you. Uh, But even more so, experiencing his father's unconditional love, day in and day out, liberated him. It gave him safety in his standing. He knew it could be anything he wanted. And it gave him freedom to soar. And so he became a quarterback, a football player, not because he had to, not because his father put any pressure on him to do so, because he wanted to, because he was absolutely infatuated with his father. Now, Peyton has turned out to be the quarterback that every coach dreams of having. Every player wants to play with. And it all started with a loving, gracious dad. You know, we share something with Peyton Manning this morning. We have a God who is absolutely wild about us. We have a God who's a father who's crazy about us. In eternity past, he knew us, he loved us, and he's willing to sacrifice his only son to have us. Nothing can stand between us and the affection he had for us, including the life of his son. So he sacrificed him and gave us his righteousness. He gave us the spirit to give us the spirit of adoption within us that we might cry out, Abba, Father, and know him and experience his rich and magnificent love. As a follower of Jesus, we have the opportunity to experience it each and every day. And when we do, we find ourselves like Peyton Manning. We may, may find ourselves wanting to grow up to be like our Father in heaven, to be just like him, not because we have to, but because of his love, we want to. This morning, the central theme of this chapter, this, this, these verses, is holiness. And I think what you'll discover about this topic may surprise you. Far, being, far from being a subject that takes you away from the gospel, holiness is a subject that catapults you forward in the gospel. Far from being a subject that will heap on weight and and, uh, shame and guilt upon us, holiness might actually help us to see our Father's love for us and liberate us to live in it. So briefly this morning, we're going to look at three things. Holiness, it's God's will for you. Holiness, God's assignment for you. And holiness, God's gift in you. So first, holiness, God's will for you. So what's the big deal? Why is Paul coming on so strong in chapter 4 in this passage? See, everything in the Greek culture of that time was set up against a male citizen. The Greek male citizen of Thessalonica had everything working against him from faithfully loving his wife. First of all, the Greek religions of that society promoted sexual license. The cults of Dionysus and Aphrodite and Orissus and Issus. They encourage, even approved sexual activity with multiple women, including religious prostitution. Secondly, the men in that society were having, were used to having many sexual partners, and there was a lot of confusion with the women in their life. Let me describe how. First, every Greek citizen, every male of Thessalonica had a wife. He, his wife was chosen to help him with his place in society. His wife's main job was to give him legitimate children and to manage his household and raise his children and help them to find their place in society. But then, in addition to this woman, his wife, he would have another female slave who would operate as his mistress. This woman would be his intellectual equal. This woman would be his sexual partner. This this woman would be his friend and confidant. If that was not enough, the average, run-of-the-mill, typical Greek citizen of Thessalonica also had a concubine. This woman existed for his sexual pleasures and appetite. And if that was not enough, the average Greek citizen also regularly visited prostitutes, which was part of his regular diet, in his worship of the various cults he was involved in. As you can see, the women in his life were at the object of his disposal, and he was responsible to none of them. Naturally, you could see why Paul is a little riled up. He starts out in verse one, brothers, I told you this before. I'm reminding you now, we're not doing this. We're called to something so much greater. See, biblical Christianity was countercultural. It was revolutionary for its time. It's saying, hey, we're going to treat women with dignity and honor as image bearers of God. I'm going to give a new paradigm for you. Actually, it's an ancient one and it's called love and it's called sacrifice. But now look at what Paul does in this passage. He doesn't dive into a lot of these particulars I just mentioned. He actually starts big picture. And this is really important because he gives us the main idea. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. See, their sanctification and holiness was Paul's primary concern in this passage. Hagiosmos is the word here. It's the process of sanctification. It covers everything from conversion to glory. Sanctification uh, starts with the very process where God regenerates us and makes us new and gives us the spirit and gives us faith and repentance. And from that point forward, sanctification is the process where the Holy Spirit makes us more and more like Jesus, where he's renewing us day by day into the image of Jesus until one day we share the glory of Jesus in the new heavens and new earth. Now, this is the will of God. The same word is translated two more times in this passage as holiness. You see, God's on a mission. His mission is our sanctification. His mission is our holiness. His mission is to make us absolutely breathtaking like Jesus Himself. And this is His will for not only Church in Thessalonica, but it's His will for us. To be like Christ in every way. Think about it. One of the privileges we have in this church is doing city Bible readings. We go through all four Gospels every year. And look at the beauty and the grandeur of the life of Jesus. Look at his humility. Even though he's got himself, how he depends on his loving father, how trusting he is in his father's love and commands, how strong he is in these dicey situations where people are trying to kill him and use him and manipulate him. Look at his compassion with those who are weak and defenseless. Look at his justice for the powerless and disenfranchised. Look how prayerful he is, how he longs to be with his heavenly father, enjoy him and receive his love. Look how fun loving he is. He loves to have a good time and everyone loves being with him because the party is wherever he is. Look how courageous he is with religious professionals that would rob people of God's grace. Look how amazing he is with great and great he is with kids. Anytime he saw him around, he wanted to bless them and enjoy them, hug them and squeeze them. He just loved kids. Look how thoughtful he is with his friends and his disciples. But most of all, Look how he enjoys the rich, satisfying approval of his father in heaven. He knew his dad was wild about him. And he loved to just soak in that love. And God's on a mission. God's will for us is to be like Christ, this Christ, in every possible way. Now, this is God's will for you. And so then let's backtrack to verse one and see how he starts off the section. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing, that, as, that you do so more and more. The ESV is so hard to read. Again, this is not new for them. They've received authoritative teaching how to walk. If you remember from Thessalonians chapter two, verse 12, he said, we exhort each and one of you, encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul is literally pleading with the church of Jesus Christ, urging them to walk in a manner worthy of God. He's trying to spur them forward in their current practices. He wants them to excel more and more in pleasing God. He wants them to hit the accelerator and go forward in what they're already doing. You see, for Paul in this passage, pleasing God is holiness. Where the personal interests of our Father in heaven become our personal and primary ambition. Now, if you're like me, pleasing God may give you the willies. That's a technical term for the heebie-jeebies. It makes you nervous. It makes you apprehensive. You see, for a lot of us who've been in the church for just a little while, pleasing God has been co-opted by the religious Pleasing God is a phrase that brings up bad memories or bad patterns where you feel this need to prove yourself and somehow earn God's love, even though it's fully ours. And so it creates questions when we heard things, terms like pleasing God. we start second guessing Paul, we think, wait a minute, Paul, I actually understand the gospel because of you. In the gospel, I already have the pleasure of my father in heaven. In the gospel, Jesus died for me, and he gave me his righteousness, and he took all my sin and shame. And so now in the gospel, my father could not be more pleased with me than he is right now. So then, Paul, why are you telling me to please God? How do I please the one that's already pleased with me? This doesn't make sense. Why are you doing this to me, Paul? I think Jesus can help us with our confusion about pleasing God. Look at Jesus at his baptism. After 30 years of living life, he began his earthly ministry. And he began his earthly ministry in a really odd way. He went to the Jordan River where John the Baptist was facilitating a baptism of repentance. Basically, John the Baptist, his job was to get everyone ready for Jesus. And he was baptizing people because they needed to get get straight and get ready for God. So Jesus shows up and John the Baptist is like, what are you doing here? I can't baptize you. He's like, yeah, 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 just go ahead and baptize me. Meaning, even then, Jesus was representing us. He had nothing to repent for, but he was already repenting on our behalf. And so, John the Baptist, he reaches down to the waters of Jordan and he pours them over the head of Jesus. And then, suddenly, the most tremendous moment happened the heavens burst forth. God could not contain himself. There was a father in heaven who absolutely adored his son, and he just had to speak. He was so proud. He he boomed out, the sky broke open, the spirit of God descended upon Jesus and everyone could hear the father speak when he said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus enjoyed perfect standing, perfect love and perfect relationship with his heavenly father. Now this impacted the earthly ministry of Jesus. He lived in, was satisfied, and shaped by the pleasure of God, and it shaped his intentions. And so look at what he says in John chapter 8. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me, and he's not left me alone. Now hear this. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You see, the pleasure of God was captivating for Jesus. And he responded with a single ambition for living for his father in heaven. You see, God's pleasure for us liberates us to live for him and for him and in him. Our standing, because it's secure in the gospel and Jesus, changes our hearts. It liberates us not to sin, but from sin. It frees us to enjoy God and live for him. And like Peyton Manning, but more so like Jesus, we want to be more like him. Think about it. When we dwell on the gospel, when we think about that the God of the universe would sacrifice his own son to give us life, that he would give us the Holy Spirit to secure us like a wedding ring and keep us safe and whole until one day he'll make the new heavens and new earth where he'll make us co-heirs with Jesus and give us all his glory. That no sin, no height, no depth, no shame in our life can rob us from the glory of love and separate us from him. If God would do all that for us, what on earth can I do to show him my appreciation and thanksgiving? What might I do in response to this? What might I stop doing in response to this grand love? You see, when we taste the Father's love, it's worth living for, and it makes us want to please him in every possible way. Naturally, as Paul develops his concept of holiness for us, We quickly see that when you understand that holiness is God's will for us, it quickly, it quickly bleeds into holiness is God's assignment for us as well. So let's look at our second point. Holiness is God's assignment for you. What is so helpful about this passage is Paul is so clear and tangible to Thessalonians. He doesn't stay conceptual. He understands that good theology, the hard good theology is application. That, That good theology is the application of all scripture for all of life. And he's applying this great concept of sanctification holiness to the area of sexual immorality in these eight verses, which he calls the church to abstain from. Now, as we dig a little closer into all these points of application in these eight verses, I put them in three buckets. There's honor the word of God, honor your spouse, and honor your neighbor's spouse. Three buckets. We'll start with the first one, honor the word of God. Look at verse two. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So Paul is switching from having them recall his loving actions, how he loved them like a father, how he loved them like a mother, how amazing he was with them, to his instruction. He's having them remember, be reminded of the repetition of the God's word that was given to them. And these reminders and repetitions are essential for them. Now verse 2 says, for you know what instructions. Instructions is too light of a word. It actually should be translated commands. And then look at these commands that we gave Paul and his fellow servants were messengers. They're delivering the mail. They were not creating the mail. They had their blue uniform on. What they received from authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, they delivered to the church. And through the Lord Jesus, the NIV translates better. It's with more force with the authority of Jesus. All right, so let's let's make this tangible for us. How do you respond to the authoritative teaching of God in areas you don't want to hear it? Think about it. We all have areas in our life that need radical transformation, do we not? We all have areas that need sanctification. We all have areas where we're terrified other people are going to see. We hide in those little shadowy places. We all have areas that we need the, the Holy Spirit to come in and transform because we feel powerless in them. So what does it look for, like for us to honor the Word of God in that area? Do you listen to the Word of God in those subject matters? Do you listen to it over and over, recognizing you need the reminders and the repetition? Do you allow it to be repetitive? Do you lean into the reminders? Do you allow the word of God to be authoritative? Is God the ultimate arbiter of truth in your game plan for who you are and where you're at? I mean, if you're like me, sometimes we're like Eve in the garden. Like, do I eat this fruit or do I not eat this fruit? We become the ultimate judge and the arbiter of truth. We begin to weigh in one hand God's word, and then we begin to weigh in the other hand our desires, our affinities, and our will. Do we submit to the marching orders of Jesus? When we look at our assignment in holiness, it begins with the word of God. How we handle it has huge ramifications. And if we're going to have any success with our assignment, it starts with honoring the word. But then Paul takes it up a notch with the church of Thessalonica. He wants us to honor your spouse. Paul puts in the negative and positive. Let's start with the negative. Paul does not want them to be ruled or controlled by their lusts. Look at verse 5. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So not in passionate lust. In the Greek that's in, pethi epithemae, epithemaeus. Now, uh, Ted loves to talk about inordinate desires and epithymia. So anytime this word comes up, he's told you over and over what this word means. It's a fantastic word. It deals with inordinate affection. Not affections are bad in themselves, but when we make it inordinate, we make it life ruling, when we give that affection or that object a total rule in our life. And so what, what Paul is doing here is like, I don't want you to have inordinate passions. Sexual desires in the Bible are a good thing but not unbridled sexual desires that create burning passions that rule you. Thessalonians, just look at your neighbors who don't know God. See the harm in their life from having unbridled passionate lust, inordinate sexual desires that are ruling them. Okay, that's nothing new for most of us in this room. Now look at the positive of what he says there as far as honoring your spouse. Look at verse four that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. I think the key word here is control. The word kasatai is mastery. It's like mastering something in music or poetry. It's like being an expert in the fine arts. So Paul's saying, hey, you need to control. You need to master your body, but for what? In this passage, you see that we need to master our body for something holy and honorable, something noble and beautiful. What is Paul talking about? Paul is saying he wants them to master their bodies for beautiful, sacrificial, holy sex life with their wives. He wants their passions to be channeled for one woman. He wants them to be single-minded in their ambition, in their desire for one woman. He wants them to be under control to serve in holy sex one woman. He wants them to be a topic matter expert of one woman. He wants them to live for the pleasure of one woman in the church in Thessalonica. He's like, your wife is not just supposed to be the manager of your household. And maybe someone who raises your kids, she used to be your friend, your confidant, your advisor, and your sexual playmate. You have four women when you should have one, and she should be the object of your passion and affection. Don't miss what Paul's doing this passage. The Bible is a high-value estimation of sex. This verse actually deserves its sermon of its own. But what we can quickly see from this passage is the person you should have the most fun with is your spouse. And let me put it another way. Paul is helping the Thessalonians to understand that their passions are to serve their spouse, and their enjoyment and fulfillment of sex is tied with serving their spouse in the most brilliant and extravagant ways two points of application for us if you're married are you a topic matter expert of your spouse have you mastered your body to serve him or her are your passions channeled single minded to serve your spouse when you go to Chipotle after worship, it'd be a great thing to talk about. Although, since the rest of the church will be there, you probably don't want to talk about that then. But at some point tonight, this would be something fantastic to talk about. Right now, a third of you in this room are like, my spouse does not love me this way. What do I do? Well, you can go hang out with your community group leader. If their marriage isn't all that great, come find me or Damien. We'll have a great time hanging out with you, trying to figure out what we can do, but this is of essential, paramount importance. It's part of your holiness. (laughs) This is God's assignment for you. If you're not married, are you controlling, are you mastering your body to serve your future spouse? Are you exhibiting self-control and saving yourself and preparing yourself? to serve and channel your passions for the one God is going to give you. The third bucket, the third assignment of God's holiness for us, God's will for us, is to honor your neighbor's spouse. And verse 6 is rather odd and clunky to our ears, but it's worth unpacking because when we see what's in there, it's equally exciting as the second point. Look at verse 6, that no one transgressed or wronged his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. In this matter, he's still on the topic of sexual morality. The word wrong here is to take advantage or exploit, again, in the matter of sexual morality. So brothers are exploiting, wronging other brothers in the church as it pertains to the realm of sexual morality. All right, now think about this with me. The church is experiencing this massive revival. You have all these baby Christians rubbing up against each other. The oldest of them possibly at this point is six months old in their faith. Think about all these intimate meetings they're having in their homes for prayer and support. Where both genders are present and they're supporting each other and helping each other in the gospel. And sexual license is in the air all around them in the culture. And they've only been Christians at top six months. So their character didn't have that much time to change and conform to the image of God. There were affairs happening in the church. And it was creating havoc for everyone. Now pay attention to what Paul says here. I actually think it's terrifying. The Lord Jesus is an avenger. That's literally what Paul says. This is a legal term. This has judicial capacity to it. Paul's basically saying adultery, yes, is sin against other people, but primarily it is a sin against the Lord. Now look at the, look at the context of this. He's saying, we warned you about this past. Jesus takes this really seriously. And when you have adultery, you're messing with the lambs of Jesus and the body of Christ. Paul already told them, you've been solemnly warned about this. When does Paul ever talk like this? This is the guy in Ephesians 1 that's like, praise God for every spiritual blessing. And you know, he's just, he's just all Jesus oriented. And he's just like coming for it. The jugular. Honoring your neighbor's spouse is a really big deal to Jesus. And those who blatantly disregard this message deal with judge Jesus. Wow. So how do you apply this? Well, I wish I had time to unpack it for everyone, but for this point, let me just unpack for those who are unmarried. How might you view someone you're interested in? I'm 41 now, so I'm old, so I don't know what we're calling it these days. Are we still calling it dating? I remember there's a while we called it courtship. I don't know what we call it these days, but let's just say you're interested in someone. Back in the 80s, like when you're macking on somebody, you know? <laughs> I, I used that recently, and I had a 20 year old look at me like, what are you talking about? I'm like, ah, I'm old. I can't relate anymore. But let's just say you're interested in somebody. Um, I think the Bible's telling us here is to think of that person as someone else's spouse. How do you treat someone you're interested in as someone else's spouse? I've been, uh, as my son's gotten older, I've been discipling him in this, and I've been passing down to him what was passed on to me when I became a Christian at 18 if you're not married, odds are any person you might date or be interested in to spend time with is most likely someone else's spouse. You know, when you're in college, when you're out of college, when you're getting older, you're meeting someone and there's a lot of energy and excitement and stuff and you get really excited about it. But if you just think about history, case law, experience, you're gonna go through multiple people before you find your spouse. And so if you're not married, you need to treat them like someone else's spouse. So when do you know you can treat them as your spouse. Well, if you're a guy, when you put a ring on that person's finger. When you're a girl is when you receive that ring and you're like, yes. Now, think about this. What would you want some other man doing with your future wife? I'm talking to fellows here. Seriously. You know, what do you want someone else doing with your future wife? Let that be the guide how you treat Any woman in your life. Gals, what do you want some other chick doing with your man? Okay? Let that be the guide for how you interact with any man that you might see. Paul is instructing us that holiness really matters to our Heavenly Father. Paul is helping us to see that Jesus takes adultery really seriously. And Paul is trying to save us in holiness to not get caught up in sin that wreaks havoc in our life, but prepare us to enjoy amazing sex with the one God has given to us in marriage. All right, I've probably gone over, but holiness is God's will for you. Holiness is God's assignment for you, but ultimately holiness is God's gift in you. When you start thinking about God's will and pleasing Him, when you start thinking about the assignments that are given to you, it's rather overwhelming. Where do we get the power? Where do we get the desire? Where do we get the drive to do this? Because left to ourselves, it's overwhelming. Look at verse seven. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. As you think of the force of this book, God has called us into his kingdom and glory. God has called us into in holiness, not to holiness, but in holiness, because we're in Christ Jesus himself, and wherever he is, holiness resides. The beauty of the gospel is we are not left alone for holiness. Look at verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards man, but not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I know there's a lot of mystery in this. Is holiness God's will for you? Yes. Is holiness God's assignment for you? Yes. Is holiness a gift in you, a work of the Holy Spirit where God will sanctify you, make you holy? Absolutely. The Holy Spirit was given for this very purpose. The Holy Spirit was given that you would not be squandered, powerless against the sin and death in your life. That Jesus himself would abide in you and live with you in concert with the Father and the Spirit and utterly transform you. Right now, the Holy Spirit's working right now to make you more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit's right now teaching you and counseling you in the word of God. Right now, the Holy Spirit's crying out, Abba, Father, inside of you. Because the Holy Spirit's trying to anchor you into the love and grace of our Father in heaven. And give us eyes to be captivated by his magnificent love for us. Thereby liberate us to want to please him. Not because we have to. But because we see that we have his pleasure. And that pleasure will never ever be removed again. Why can you grow in holiness? Because the Holy Spirit is going to make you grow in holiness. Why are you going to grow in holiness? Because Jesus is in you and he will never let go. Nothing can separate you from his love. He is mad about you because his Father in heaven's wild about you. And he will not stop and rest until you're perfect and glorious like him in the new heavens and new earth where you share his perfection and glory and with him you worship the Father and you joy his magnificent love. Holiness is God's gift in you. And because it's God's gift in you, you want to lean into his will for you and clearly do the chores he's given you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I know for myself, when I think about the assignments you've given me, I know the areas in my life where I need you to sanctify me, just like my brothers and sisters in this room. And Father, as we've sought to please you, we have gone through cycles of legalism where we're trying to earn your love and we desperately need you to break in and and help us to see what we have in the Father. Holy Spirit, today would you give us eyes to see our Father's rich love for us, his concern for us, his working on our behalf. Would you give us eyes to see Jesus interceding for us and as a good shepherd protecting us, loving us, leading us, enjoying us. Holy Spirit, would you even give us eyes to see your activity in our hearts transforming us and changing us? Would you root us more and more in the gospel? Would you give us fresh faith and fresh repentance that we might... Enjoy God's will for us. Lean into his assignments for us and enjoy the gift you are in us. We pray this in your blessed name, amen.